Well, good morning once again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 13? If you're new with us, welcome to Calvary. It's good to see you. We are currently working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. As I just said, we are in John 13. The scene is the upper room the night before Jesus' crucifixion where he and his disciples are observing the Passover together. Also, the Lord is using this time to give his disciples one last teaching before his death, to encourage them and, yes, to instruct them, seeing as, yes, he's going to the cross the next day. Three days after that, he will rise from the dead, and 40 days after that, he will ascend back to his Father and turn the work of the kingdom over to them. And so a monumentous time is upon them. And uh, Jesus wants to comfort their hearts. He wants to instruct them going forward. And a very critical time. Now, last time we uh, said that in the course of giving them this final discourse, the Lord Jesus Christ says something that most Christians would read quickly over, I think, and not give much thought to. And yet it is something that I believe is essential to living a happy and fulfilled life on the earth. And that's why I'm calling this message the secret of a happy life. So verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The word blessed there in verse 17 is the Greek word makarios and literally means, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy. It's the same Greek word that Jesus used in giving the Beatitudes when nine times he said blessed. Matthew 5, verse 3, I have to turn there, but blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Oh, how happy is what he's saying. Oh, how happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You can read the whole passage on your own. Again, the word makarios literally means, oh, how happy, but it's not the happiness as, it's not happiness as the world defines it. That, that's the big thing, right? The Greek word describes a person who has happiness, which is rooted in the heart and not in outward circumstances. We would call it joy. Joy. You see, our English word for happy is based on an old Anglo-Saxon word, hap, which means chance, as in whatever happens or happenstance. Earthly happiness is circumstantial. Therefore, it is uncertain, temporary, and insecure because our outward circumstances are always changing, right? Boss calls you in, I'm giving you a raise. Oh, I'm happy. Calls you back in a few days later, I got to let you go, you're making too much money. Uh, I'm unhappy now. You know, it, it, our circumstances change and we get happy depending if they're positive and sad if they're not so positive. But where's blessing, the kind of blessing that the scriptures talk about, the kind of happiness uh, of the Christian life is not temporary or uncertain. Listen, it's solid and unshakable because it's rooted in our relationship with Jesus, which is in itself solid and unshakable. It's permanent. When you gave your heart to Christ, you entered into an eternal relationship with Christ that never changes. Your circumstances change all the time. Your relationship with Jesus, I'm not, uh, yeah, okay, we backslide once in a while. I'm, not, I'm talking about your positional relationship. Your salvation is absolutely secured in that regard, uh, so is you know the joy that comes with that. You don't have to worry. Your relationship with Jesus is permanent and unshakable. That's why somebody is called the Beatitudes, no doubt with tongue in cheek, the Beatitudes, not the do-attitudes. 
They are the inward attitudes that are found in the heart of a person who is a Christian. Look, when a person has a changed heart, it's going to overflow and produce a changed life. As Jesus said, cleanse the inside of the cup, and it will overflow and cleanse the outside also. He isn't talking about doing dishes, folks. He was talking about cleansing the heart, right? And that only happens when you receive him into your heart as your Lord and Savior. He comes inside through the power of the Holy Spirit and begins a work of cleansing. Create in me a clean heart, O God, David said after he had sinned with Bathsheba. But this is Christianity. It's a relationship. It's not a religion. And it starts the moment you open your heart to Christ and invite him in to be your savior, right? He takes over and so on. Um, the alternative is religion. Well, we would say law. Religions are based in law. And um, religions leads to frustration any kind of religious activity uh which people use to kind of draw close to god and and have a changed life it, it leads to to a, a pure frustration in my mind because it tries to change people from the outside in it tries to change people that's what religion does through ceremonies and and man-made laws and various other things that people observe they're trying to change themselves but religion changes a person from the outside in and only surface cleanses a person. Really, it produces nothing but Pharisees, whom Jesus called, said were like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they look all clean, righteous, holy, but inside they're full of defilement, uncleanness, hypocrisy, and so on. That's religion, all right? Religion can give the appearance that something has gone on, that maybe a change has taken place, but God sees the heart. And the heart is untouched because only a relationship with Jesus Christ invites God in to begin to work on the inside. As he cleanses our hearts on the inside, guess what? It overflows. It produces a changed life, a cleansed life, a holy life on the outside, right? This is very important. The Bible teaches that a changed life is the result of a changed heart. And that only comes by receiving Christ into your heart as your Savior. Um, look, the, be the beatitudes, right? Well, you know, again, uh, they're not, they're not, they're beatitudes, not do attitudes. Religion focuses on the word do. Christianity focuses on the word be, what you are in Christ. Okay, very important point, because um, you can't do what God wants you to do until you first are what God wants you to be. That is so fundamental to Christianity. The first step is becoming a new creation through Christ and receiving a new heart, which then will produce a changed lives, a changed life. And that's why the Beatitudes, Jesus presented them first in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. It's because they are kingdom attitudes. Again, they come from the heart. And kingdom attitudes come from the heart and produce kingdom actions, which flow into our lives and that's what jesus began to teach in matthew 5 starting with verse 13 after he laid out the beatitudes then he begins to give the kingdom actions okay for those who have uh the kingdom attitudes in their heart because they're now members of the kingdom they've been born born into the kingdom so guys it's, it's very important that god right up front in the sermon on the mount he presents this that the Christian life is really not about doing. Sure, obviously, that's, if you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus said. It's about being, because you can't, again, do what God wants. You can't live the life God wants you to live until you first are the person God wants you to be, born of the Spirit, right? A child of God with the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Guys, it is the desire of God for all of his kids that we have joy. Okay, that we have joy. Why? Because joy is an attribute of God. We talk about the fruits of the Spirit. They're nothing more than the attributes of God. Love, joy, peace, and so on, right? Galatians 5, 22 and 3. Whether you realize it or not, those are the attributes of God's nature. Now, before you received Christ, you couldn't produce that. You could fake it. We did. We fake love. We fake peace. We fake joy. But it wasn't real. Second uh, Peter 1, 4, Peter says, When you accepted Christ into your heart, uh, God moved in in the person of the holy spirit right and he he began to take a, he took a residence in your heart and now 
the nature of God. Peter says we have become partakers of God's divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4. And only when you receive Christ can you become partakers of God's divine nature and now have the fruit of God, the Spirit, or the attributes of God to come forth from your life. And one of those attributes is joy. God wants His children to have joy. Now, I purposely named this uh, message a little bit of a shallow title, right? The Secret of a Happy Life. And if you didn't know me and just saw that title, you'd say, oh, another preacher preaching to felt needs. Oh, hallelujah. Another one of those guys, all he wants to do is make people feel good about themselves. And you know what? If I was that kind of guy and I was going there in this message, I deserve that. But I'm talking about a happiness that is biblical in its definition. Not worldly. Not circumstance-based. Outward circumstance stuff. I'm talking about a happiness that is more akin to joy than it is happiness, right? And it comes from our relationship with Jesus. And uh, very important. Um, I believe this was the goal of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 13, excuse me, in Matthew 5, and in John 13, that he wanted us to understand. You know, I told first service, I said, you know, there are churches that live all the way down on that end of the spectrum. It's all about felt needs. It's all about saying things that make people feel... They, the preacher will never say anything negative because it's all about making your folks feel good and leaving here feeling like your self-esteem has been boosted and so on and so forth. That's wrong. That's wrong. But then we have the other end of the spectrum where a lot of Christians live and they have like feelings are, in their minds, bad. You know, and it's like they, 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 they put down feelings, like we're robots or something. That's wrong too. You know, God wants us to have a balance. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with being happy. It's just that sometimes as God is, is, is building into me the character of Christ, he allows adversity to come upon me. Uh, that draws me closer to Jesus. The Father uses that as the handle of the pruning knife that prunes away the, uh, as Jesus is going to say in John 15, uh, what the... What the um, those that uh, raise uh, vineyards and things uh, call the uh, sucker shoots. These little shoots that, that come off the, the main vine of the, of the grape uh, uh, plants, right? And they suck the energy away. And so the, the vine dresser, we'll talk more about this in John 15, but takes that pruning knife and, 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 and cuts away those little things so that the energy is focused on the fruit becoming richer and fuller and riper and so on. Sometimes God is doing that. And I'm not going to be happy about that. It hurts. It's not pleasant. It's going to produce more fruit in my life. And that's what the Father is up to. But God isn't against us being happy. I mean, he, I want my kids to be happy. I don't want to be happy at the expense of my relationship with Jesus, though. If, mean, if, it means, if happiness means I have a shallow relationship with Jesus... And God never does anything to deepen my walk and use me in a greater way for his glory, then, then I'd rather at times be unhappy. If it means I'm drawn close to Jesus and being pruned and being uh, and, I'm, and I'm growing in my walk with him, right? Um, but but this, but God, you know, here I, I believe that Jesus is stressing to these men who very shortly are going to be without him. Uh, he's going to be ascending back to the Father. Uh, in a little over 40 days from this point. And uh, so he wants them to understand that there are difficult times coming. But you will always know the joy of God in your heart if you access that joy. It's there. It's there. Uh, we don't always access it because we got our, my, our eyes too much on the temporal and not on the eternal. So guys, once again, this blessedness, this oh how happy kind of a life, uh, is available only to those who are in Christ. Uh, those who are saved, who are born of the Spirit, where the Spirit now has moved in and uh, lives inside of us. There is no true happiness or blessedness apart from God and His Son, Jesus Christ. So when we talk about happiness, biblically speaking, again, we're not talking about a superficial attitude towards based on our circumstance. 
we're talking about an inward attitude based on the indwelling of God within us. Now, indulge me for just a little bit longer with the Beatitudes. And if you haven't turned there, why don't you? Um, turn to Matthew 5. Because as we look at the Beatitudes, Jesus seems to be telling us in Matthew 5 that they are the foundation of happiness. Oh, how happy, he says nine times. This, this, and that, right? They seem, but as you read them, they seem almost paradoxical. Paradoxical. Because they're completely reversed from what we, and especially, or definitely the world, would have equated happiness with. Let me paraphrase, right? Jesus said that the really happy people are the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, the hungry and thirsty, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, and the reviled. I think most people, when they uh, read those words of Jesus in the Beatitudes, uh, probably are thinking to themselves, I, I don't think I want that kind of happiness. But we understand that. The world doesn't get it. We wouldn't have gotten it either before we got saved. I mean, to be happy, you got to be miserable? Uh, that kind of a thing? Well, not always, but we understand there's a cross involved, and Christian life is not easy, and they've hated me, they're going to hate you also, Jesus said, and you're going to be persecuted, but I love you, and blessed are you when you're persecuted. You know you're on the right team. You know you belong to me. But the world hears stuff like that, and, and, and they think it's absolutely absurd. One writer said, and I quote, it's as if Jesus crept into the large display window of life and changed all the price tags. In other words, the things we consider of little or no value, Jesus assigns great value and worth to those things, like humility and servanthood and vice versa. You know, we are so blessed to live in a country like this. We have documents, founding documents, that guarantee us happiness, right? Our Declaration of Independence, right? One of our greatest founding documents states that all men, all women are created equal and have been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights and that among these are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As Americans, we are promised, we are guaranteed we can pursue happiness. That is our, our, our national birthright, to be happy. Now here's the problem. How do you define happiness? How do you define happiness? Each person has their own personal definition of happiness. And because so many people define happiness as being rich, successful, beautiful, famous, popular, well, uh, that's what they pursue in life. Because in their minds, that's what's going to bring them happiness. But let's look at King Solomon for a minute. Okay, King. So I always go back to King Solomon on this subject. Always. He was the most magnificent king that ever lived apart from the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. He was a man who had everything this world had to offer. Now think about this, okay? Think of it in the context of things bring happiness. I mean, here was a man who had everything the world had to offer. He had prestige and power. Uh, he had riches and fame. I mean, he was probably the richest king that has ever lived, that has ever lived. He dined on the finest foods, wore the finest clothes, lived in the finest palace. He had thousands of servants to attend his every need and hundreds of wives and concubines so that his pleasure knew no bounds. He was the wisest and most intelligent man that ever lived, again, apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. So much so that people came from all over the known world just to sit at his feet and hear his wisdom. Solomon had it all. I mean, he was about as close to the man who gained the whole world as you could ever see, right? If outward circumstances make truly make a person happy, then Solomon should have been the happiest man on the face of the earth. But instead, we read in the book of Ecclesiastes over and over again, where Solomon says, vanity, vanity, 
Everything in life is emptiness and vanity. The Hebrew word for vanity is hevel. It means, it means emptiness and futility. Some have likened it to soap bubbles. A soap bubble appears for a short time, pops, it's gone, leaves nothing behind. Solomon said that's what all that life offers is. It appears for a while, makes you happy for a little while, and pop, it's gone, and you're as empty as you've ever have been, maybe more so. Jesus put it this way. He said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. I wish more Americans would read that and really take it to heart. We would do well to listen to Jesus, again, who said, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Stop chasing after things. Right? Stop running to stuff mart. <laughs> And then renting a stuff, what do you call those things, storage unit. Because you can't keep all your stuff in your house. Uh, Jesus said, happiness doesn't lie there. It's not found there. And we would do well to listen to him, after all, because he made us and knows what will make us happy. And although these beatitudes, or excuse me, and through these beatitudes, he is basically saying, Listen now. Our Lord is basically saying it's pure foolishness to think that you can fill the void in your soul with the junk of this world. And yet how many people are feverishly trying to do that very thing? Here's how they think. Maybe not say it out loud, but here's how they think, many uh, Americans. Uh, if your marriage is lousy, mm, go on an expensive vacation. That'll help. Or buy a, buy a car. If you're unhappy at your job, go shopping, buy some shoes, or get a new tech gadget, you know? That'll make you feel better. I mean, the whole advertising industry is based on this principle, that if you're unhappy in any area of your life, product ABC or XYZ, if you get that, it's going to make you happy. And on and on it goes, as so many people are pursuing feverishly the elusive concept of Happiness. What they don't realize in their pursuit of happiness is that true happiness is not found in a possession or in a pleasure. It's found in a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. And that's because true happiness comes when a person's empty heart is filled. You see, the Bible says that all of us are born with an empty heart. I don't know if you realize that. Uh, in fact, in, I think it was in Romans, Paul said that God has created every person with a God-shaped void in their heart. A void that you can only fill with God, right? He's the missing piece. A lot of people don't realize that, so they try to stuff the junk of the world into that hole in their heart. And it doesn't satisfy, right? And it's all kinds of stuff. It's not just material things. It's relationships. Remember the woman in John 4? who was married and divorced five times, now living with a guy? Jesus called her on that. She was trying, she was empty. She was unhappy, miserable, empty inside. And she's trying to fill the void with human relationships. What she was craving for was a relationship with God. She didn't realize it until Jesus showed up and explained it to her. Every one of us has been created by God with a God-shaped void in our heart. And the only time we'll be happy is when we receive Christ into our heart to fill the void and begin to live his life through us. Because only when we do that and Jesus moves in will we know happiness, listen, as a fruit or a byproduct of our relationship with him. Now listen, it kind of begs the question. Now we're talking about, okay, happiness, that's Jesus, you know? You're, you're unsatisfied, you're unfulfilled in life, you're unhappy, you feel like there's a void, something missing. You have to receive Jesus, right? He's the answer. But if that's true, then why are so many Christians depressed and unhappy in their Christian life? That's a great question. To answer it, we have to go back to John 13. 
You see, the key to living a happy or joyful life is to first receive Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior. That's true. That's where it all starts. But then to, to experience the happiness Jesus, Jesus spoke of in the Beatitudes on a daily basis, we must listen to, take to heart, and obey his words in John 13, verse 17, where Jesus said to his disciples, if you know these things, Blessed are you. Oh, how happy are you if you do them? Which immediately begs the question, if I know and do what things? Okay, context. What was the context? As we come to the last night of Jesus' life, that starts in John 13. As we come to the last night Jesus would spend with his disciples before his crucifixion. There in the upper room, they had just eating the Passover meal. And he launches into a final discourse. I was telling first service, when you know you only have hours to live, you want to gather around your bedside all the people you love most, your family, maybe a good friend, right? And what do you want to do? You've only got a few hours left on this earth. You going to talk sports? You going to talk about the weather? Well, some might, I don't know. Uh, no you want to talk about the most important lessons you've learned in life because you want to give them to the people you love the most so that they can benefit from all your years of living on the earth and what you have learned is most important that will benefit them the most in their life correct Jesus wanted to pass along to his disciples things that well, he had learned, although he did learn. He grew in knowledge and stature, the Bible says, because he took on a, hu a human body. So he did learn, of course. But he wanted to, for the most part, yes, encourage them for the future. Okay, I'm going away soon. Where I'm going, you can't follow me. Not yet. I'll come back for you. I'm not, but I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'll send another helper who will be with you forever, the Holy Spirit. So he comforts them for the future in that regard. But he also wants to reinforce some of the most important lessons that he has taught them over the course of his ministry. And on this night, the one that stands out above all the others in my mind, at least in John 13, is servanthood. Servanthood. The Lord's comments on servanthood were nothing new. He had taught them that greatness in the kingdom of God was based on them becoming, listen, lowly servants and not worldly lords. He said, unbelievers, they measure greatness by how many people they're over in authority. God measures greatness by how many people you're under in the sense of how many are you serving. But he had taught them this. We, we turn to Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28 last time. So he had, this was nothing new. But a, a good teacher, and Jesus was the greatest teacher, understand, you teach by repetition. You want to drive home something to the hearts of your, your students. You keep repeating it, and this is what he is doing now. He's repeating this lesson that he had given them, no doubt, numerous times over the course of his three-and-a-half-year ministry. He wanted them to take it to heart, but unfortunately, they didn't seem to have done that. How do I know that? Because as we talked last time, what led Jesus to stop in the middle of the Passover Seder? To get up, walk over to where that, that pitcher of water and basin was and towel that was always by the door of every house, because when they walked on those dirt roads with open sandals, of course, their feet got very dirty, and they didn't sit at table. They reclined at, on, on a big block of wood. It was, a, uh, was a, just a table was on the floor with no legs, and they had pillows. They would lean over on one side and at like a 45-degree angle, and, and, and if you had enough people, it would go around the entire table, which meant your head wasn't too far from uh, somebody's feet. Uh, it was a courtesy to provide water for people to wash their feet if you didn't have a servant to do them that for them. We talked about this. So nobody had washed anyone's feet. Here they are now, and Jesus was waiting, I'm sure, to see if who would be the one who would wash feet, who would volunteer to do that. The lowliest task of the lowliest servant. Had they learned anything about humility in the three and a half years I've been with them? 
Well, here they go. Not only did they not wash each other's feet, Luke 22, 24 tells us at one point they start arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Greatness God measures in terms of humility. These men were proud. They were not being humble. And so even as Jesus had taught them this principle of greatness in God's kingdom through his words, now he stands up, walks over to where the pitcher of water was in the towel, takes the towel, girds it around his waist, pours some water in a basin, and begins to take it to each disciple and begins to wash their feet. He is now teaching them, John 13, by example. The greatest form of teaching, right? Once again, to open this message, I said in the course of giving them this final discourse, the Lord Jesus, and again, the one who created them, knew them better than anyone, gives them the secret to, a, to living a happy life, to living a fulfilled life on the earth. Right after washing the disciples' feet, again, the lowliest task of the lowliest servant, we read, let's read John 13, 12 again. So, he, uh, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, not really, he reclined, but he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. In other words, if I, being your king, could wash your feet, is there any job too lowly for you? If your king can do the lowliest job of, of the lowliest servant, why are you arguing among yourselves who's greatest? You want to be great in the kingdom? Then become a servant of all. That's what he was saying. If you know these things, verse 17, blessed are you if you do them. In other words, the secret, guys, to a happy and fulfilled life is becoming a servant to others. Now look, I admit, that is not a popular message for Americans to hear. I will never grow a megachurch with that principle. I guarantee it. I mean, 40 years of ministry, here we are, right? I mean, you want a megachurch today? You don't tell people to die to self to serve others. You teach them how they can serve themselves and be wealthy and prosperous and famous and so on. That's not the gospel that Jesus preached. See, a lot of churches are making happiness um, the focus. In the process, they're making happiness a direct pursuit. Not telling their people, not maybe understanding themselves that it's a byproduct of serving others. Only when you serve others will you experience true happiness. I'm talking about joy now, right? There was a missions organization back in the 1800s, and they had numerous missionaries on the mission field, and the, 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 um, uh, the office where they headquarters wanted to get a message out of encouragement to all the missionaries on the mission field. So they sent a gentleman uh, that worked for them to the telegraph office, going back in the 1800s, right? And, of course, they would send letters and things, but, but this was a new medium of communication. And so they, they, they wanted to quickly get, a, get the word out. Okay, maybe they, I forgot the story. If there was some things they heard, there was difficulties happening and missionaries were suffering and losing heart. So they, they wanted to quickly get a message out. So they dispatched this guy to this telegraph office in their community. And when he got there, he had a message all nice and, and written out he was going to send, but... The gentleman who ran the place said, well, we charge by the letter. And when he added up the amount of, the, he didn't have enough money. In fact, he realized he had only enough money to send one word. Think about that. What, would you, what word would you have picked to send to the, to the mission field? I would send Jesus. Well, that's good. Okay, but... 
Jesus is the answer for every problem. But I'm talking about just a practical exhortation, something that would encourage them, right? You know what word he chose? Others. Others. In saying that, he put his finger on the Christian life. It is not about me. It's about you. My Christian life is all about esteeming others better than myself. That's what Jesus did. Who didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but laid that aside, became one of us lowly, born in a manger, lived a very difficult life. Why? To go to the cross and die for others. Others. That's the Christian life. Somehow our modern American Christianity has moved from being Christ-centered and others-centered to being very self-centered. Maybe that's the big reason why so many Christians seem empty and unhappy inside. Look, if the more you die to self, the more you experience happiness and joy in your life, wouldn't that mean, conversely, the less you die to self, the more you honor self and exalt self, the less happiness and fulfillment you'll have inside? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, right? I think this is especially true with the millennial generation. The millennial generation. There is never, this is in, in, in uh, uh, I'm going to say surveys, but studies have been done on this. So I, I, I've read this, okay? There has never been a generation in American history that has been less churched and more self-focused than the millennials. Millennials were born roughly from 1981 to 1995. Probably the most selfish generation in our history, not all of them, in general. The exact opposite of what we call the greatest generation that fought World War II. Many of them died, right? Those young people. Of course, the millennial generation is being pursued by Generation Xers. X, Generation X, right? Uh, They're in hot pursuit. They were born from 1965 to 1980. But let's just focus on millennials right now, okay? The tragedy is that as they have pursued, all that the world has told them will bring them happiness and fulfillment that we know as Christians can't, won't, right? Well, the tragedy is that everything they were hoping to achieve has been the exact opposite, just like we just said. All this pursuit of happiness in terms of material things and so on is the exact opposite in life that of everything that makes life worth living, the joy, the peace, the purpose, the fulfillment, all of that found in Christ, uh, and none of it found in the world, really, except cheap counterfeits. I mean, the world can manifest some hap- joy, happiness, love, peace, you know, but it, it, it's counterfeit. It's not real, right? Only Jesus living inside can produce the real stuff, the real fruit of the Spirit. Um, I recently came across a letter, that's where I'm going with this, written by a millennial. I read a lot of letters written by different kinds of people, but this one really caught my attention. It, it really took me back. He's being incredibly honest. And he's really drawing out of the emptiness that is inside of him to communicate a lesson about how everything his generation was taught would bring them happiness and fulfillment has done just the opposite. The title of the article caught my eye. That's why I read it. I've condensed it. You can go online and read the whole thing, right? It's called Millennials, the Dying Children. Millennials, the Dying Children. Let me read to you a portion of it. It's a little long, but, but I think you'll understand how important it is we, we read this. This guy, I didn't go to a Christian website to get He's not a Christian. He's just a secular guy expressing his heart as one of the millennial from the millennial generation. Let me read it to you. He said, and I quote, I'm one of the oldest millennials. Something terrifying is happening to us. The oldest of us are rapidly closing in on 40. We are the least married, least fertile. Now, that's interesting because the article does talk about 
how the millennial generation is the least fertile physically of any generation. And, and there's reasons for that. But I didn't want to go into the physical. He talks about that a little bit. But see, he says he says that we are the least married, least fertile generation in history. Really, only 30% of people under 40 are married. We started coming of age in 2003. And economic conditions uh, were nowhere close to as bad as they were in the 1930s or 40s or even the 1970s when people had little trouble marrying and procreating. Yet, here we are. Aging out of our ability to enjoy childhood, feeling, the, feeling death creep up on us. The video games have grown boring. The TV marathons are suffocating. The candy tastes like ashes in our mouths. We're committing suicide and consuming antidepressants at, a record, at record rates. We try to accumulate more and it fails to make us happy. We don't know why and we don't know how we got here. Rhetorical question because he goes on to answer. So I'll tell you why. He says, my entire life, the only message I got from school, church, college, and the media was that every decision I made, from what degree to, per, what degree to pursue to where I lived to whether to marry, was with the goal of having a maximally pleasurable life. It was the pursuit of happiness. True as someone raised in a, true as someone raised in a conservative church, I was, he was raised, I don't think he's born again. He was raised in a church. Uh, as someone raised in a conservative church, I was warned against fornication and substance abuse, but these were framed in terms of interfering with the good life. So don't fornicate and take drugs because it's going to mess you up from having the good life, that happy life you deserve. In the 1990s, there was no difference between Christians and non-Christians in that, in that general outlook. Both Christian and non-Christians were equally horrified at the notion that a bright young woman might not end up maximizing her potential, which meant putting 40 hours, uh, which meant putting 40, 40 hours a week into a cubicle. Both warned her against getting married too young because marriage could cut short a promising career. Evangelicals, for their part, indulge in a pious fiction that the unmarried 25-year-olds in their church were all virgins. But still, everyone agreed that the proper way to treat the world is as your playground. It's sad to watch my generation collapse into nihilism and fear as our bodies begin the process of dying. The men become bug men. Anybody ever heard of that phrase, bug men? I had to look it up. I'd never heard of it. The Urban Dictionary defines bug man as, and I'm quoting them, the rootless, lifeless, metropolitan drones who have a permanent thousand-yard stare due to, the, to an existence void of any meaning other than waiting for the next iPhone. So now you all know what a bug man is. Let me go back and repeat that statement. It's sad to watch my generation collapse into nihilism and fear as our bodies begin the process of dying. These, the men become bug men, living to consume. Filling shelf after shelf with toys their adult brains can't find amusement in because they know of nothing else to do. The women are in a panic, desperately trying to hold on to their evaporating youth, trying to prove to themselves that a woman can be just as sexy and alluring at 35 as she could at 23. Now my generation is absolutely miserable because we're reaching that age where your brain shifts modes from consume and copulate to prepare your offspring for adulthood, but they don't have any kids, many of them. They're not even married. That's his point. And we don't understand what that, we don't understand that's what's actually happening. Women of my generation have been told their entire lives that loneliness is a psychological disorder, that children are parasites, and that exhausting yourself for 40 hours a week at work is the meaning of life. It turns out that continuing to live as though you were a teenager does not, in fact, bequeath eternal youth to a person. For my generation, there is not really a path back out. All the social institutions of this country have been detonated in the quest for money and self or via the hysterical condemnation, condemnation of every kind of organic and social relation as sexist or racist. In the cities, nobody knows anybody. Professional associations and social clubs are borderline non-existent. 
Nobody knows or cares about anyone, and nobody, uh, nobody knows how to start caring. It's so sick and twisted that my generation uses the word community to refer to people who buy the same consumer products. Like going to see a movie means you're part of the Star Wars community. Even churches have been consolidated into massive theme parks where anonymous masses of people go to be entertained. He brings it to a close. He said, Millennials need to accept that the values inculcated in us were a load of horse manure. I don't see that happening, though, as we're mostly upset that we can't live the idyllic lives of self-indulgence the boomers promised us. That would be their parents. I'm a boomer. Okay, those born from, what, 45 to 63, something like that. And that, you know, so, so parents, you know, pr- you know, they saw their parents living this idyllic life, you know, the, the, the two dogs, the, the white picket fence uh, in suburbia, something, that, that kind of thing. And they can't e- reach that even level that their parents had. This is the first generation, well, millennials might be included, that is not going to achieve the same level of affluence as their parents. It, 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 meet it or exceed it. I don't see that happening as we're mostly upset that we can't live this idyllic life that the boomers promised us, even suggesting, he said, now, even suggesting to this generation uh, that divorce should be harder, marriage should be younger, and women were built to be mothers, not office drones, causes the average millennial to dissolve into hysterical outrage. So true. Uh, We're the generation that thinks having a country is racist. And that the most important thing about space exploration is making sure a hijab-clad hijab clad Muslims are part of it. So we're probably not going to snap out of it. We'll be buried in Batman coffins surrounded by our Xbox games, and he goes on. I think you get the point, okay? It gets a little depressing. But he's sharing his heart, okay? He's sharing his heart. Look, this is a generation that's crying out for help. It's crying out for help. This generation, and this, the, the one who wrote this, speaking for so many in his generation, again reminds me of Solomon, who started out well in life, had a godly father. David was the kind, he was not perfect by any means, but David was the kind of guy that drew all of his joy and fulfillment from his relationship with the Lord, right? The only thing I desire, David said, is that I might dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to forever behold the beauty of the Lord. That's all I want in life. Solomon started out that way, but somewhere along the line, his relationship with God stopped satisfying him, and that's when he went on this years-long, and it might have been most of his life, journey, looking for happiness in all the wrong places, right? And you can read Ecclesiastes. He tried to find happiness and pleasure and, uh, and uh, in learning and building things, and all these pursuits started an uh, import-export business and made uh, zillions of dollars, Right? After every pursuit he thought was going to lead to happiness, vanity, vanity, it's all emptiness and vanity. That was the thing, right? It wasn't until the end of his life that he comes back, he realizes that all the while he's looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Really, happiness, the kind of happiness that is inward, joy, can only be found in a relationship with God. And so he he ends the letter by saying to the young people, listen to me. On the day I was coronated, my father gave me good advice. He told me, serve God with a loyal heart, a willing mind. Seek him, pursue him. He'll be found by you if you pursue him. If you forsake him, he'll forsake you. I should have listened to my dad. He was right. And now all you young people, don't make the same mistake I made. Don't try to find happiness anywhere but in your relationship with God. Look, folks, if we're going to help the millennials or anybody else in this world, we're going to have to get our heads on straight. We're going to have to start getting back the basics in our Christian life. And it isn't about pursuing happiness as a direct pursuit. It isn't about being like the world and pursuing all the material things and pleasures because we're buying into what they believe happiness is all about. We ought to know better. Shame on us. We ought to know better. And the only way we're going to help people to come to Jesus is by finding our satisfaction in Jesus. That's the only way, right? Now, what is needed to accomplish that? And we're done. 
We live in a blessed country, don't we? America is the most blessed country in the face of the earth. Oh, how happy we are to be Americans. Right? But it has a downside. We're clinging too much to this, to the blessings of this country. And I think God needs to tear it away from us to get us to cling to what really matters, our relationship with him. What does that mean? I don't know. We'll see. I think he's doing it as we speak. We'll see. But if Jesus is coming as soon as we think he is, and the world is ripe unto harvest right now, we better get our heads in the game. And we better start realizing I am on this earth not to serve myself, not to lay up treasures in heaven, excuse me, not to lay up treasures for myself on the earth, but treasures in heaven. And Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. That is the secret of living a happy life. It's all about serving the Lord, obeying what he has said, and giving your lives to others that they might know your Savior. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for this simple message in your word. Uh, what is it? Just 12, 15 words that communicate one of the greatest lessons in life we could ever learn. That happiness comes not from being served, but from serving others. And giving our lives a ransom for many, even as you did, Lord. Father, forgive us. I, I'm speaking for me now. I'm not talking for anybody else. Forgive me for my selfishness. So often, Lord, I make everything about me. Forgive me. Work within me, within all of us. That we stop being so self-focused. And start being Christ-centered and others-focused. No wonder Christians are so miserable. No wonder Christians are taking antidepressants and, 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 and drinking themselves into early graves. They're empty inside. They're miserable because they've stuffed the, the void in their hearts with self instead of with you who demand we die to self if we're going to serve you in truth. Lord, give us grace. Fill us with your spirit afresh. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.